Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We have made it to the book of Acts. We are done, basically, with all of the red letters of the Bible, the things Jesus said, the quotes of Jesus. But this time, we're going to keep reading. We're going to continue with Acts chapter 2 tonight, and we're going to just keep in mind, none of this is red letters, no matter who's saying it. So um, let's remember that in our Christian walk in general. Being said, let's begin, and as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce anything. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So, Penta means 50, that uh, prefix. And um, so, it's 50 days after uh, Jesus' death, resurrection, um, and ascension. Um, for the people of the religion Jesus was born into, Jewish people, Pentecost, refers to the holiday celebration of when Moses was believed or said to have gotten the Ten Commandments. For Christians since then, the holiday um, is um, conflated into Pentecost, I guess, um, in worship um, with being the daytime after Jesus' resurrection when the disciples, the Christian, first Christians, um, of the Bible, anyway, received uh, the Holy Spirit. So the same holiday, Pentecost, but uh, being celebrated by lots of different people for two different reasons. Um, and the new reason, the, the resurrection reason, is a brand new one uh, for the people on the scene. The one with Moses and the Ten Commandments, Pentecost had this ancient, even for the people back then. So that being said, verse 2. And suddenly... There came a sound from heaven as, uh, did we get to, uh, we did, okay, sorry. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So uh, while these everyone's gathered together for this uh, holiday, basically it's a religious holiday, though, sort of the same way people have religious holidays like Passover. Um, so they're gathered together for this holiday from all sorts of different places. That's what we read about when, um, uh, in, uh, well, we'll just keep reading. So there, there's a, a gust of wind that happens and fills the whole house where everyone was at. Verse 3, then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. So when it says a tongue of fire, I think of if you have a lighter and you flick it and it flicks a bit, and you see that flame pops up like that, that's what I think of as a tongue of fire. If you type in uh, your emoji, of a fire emoji, that first one that pops up, that's what I think of as a tongue of fire, so that's what popped up on everyone's head who's gathered there, uh, but they don't seem to be on fire. So in the Bible, sometimes when it talks about, like they say, um, has eyes like uh, flames of fire, I think what it's saying is um, that uh, something is full of light, because back then they didn't have um, power companies like we have now, where you could flick a switch and turn on a light or, you know, move your phone and turn on a light. It wasn't like that, so the only light in general that people would see other than what's in the sky or sometimes could be in the water because there's bioluminescent creatures in the water um, would be is if you light a fire. That would be it. So when they say they had eyes like a flame of fire, I think what they're saying is light seems to be emitting from the person or whatever it is when it's being described. But in this case, it seems to be talking about literally like a tongue of fire, like you would think of a flame 
on top of each person's head. Um, verse 4, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the people who the flame was that appeared on top of their heads were induced, according to the narrator here, um, induced by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to um, speak. And it's saying speak with other tongues. Um, and it's going to explain more about that. So I won't even go into it right now. Verse 5. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So again, this is a holy gather, a holiday, a holy holiday, um, literally holy day of people gathering together from all around um, to Jerusalem for, again, to celebrate the, the holiday of Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. But it's about to be another holiday tied into um, that the people weren't ready for. Um, verse 6, And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. So uh, there are people who are onlookers who heard the sound of the wind, the gust of wind that filled the whole house where everyone's at, and now everyone's speaking in what know tongues as we to say and other people outside of the 120 there's like so many are here we got that from verse from chapter one of acts that it's strong grown from 12 disciples to 120 disciples who are gathered here and so they're they they're they're all they all have the holy spirit like scenes with the flame of fire appearing on their heads as they're gathered here in this place and um, but because it's audible, other people also heard it and apparently came running to see what what's the commotion. Um, and when they saw them, they noticed that the people who what that all of this is happening with are um, not their own people. So it's going to explain it more. So I'll just keep reading verse seven. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, "Look." Are not all these who speak Galileans? So, like Jesus is Jesus of Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth. He's from those from that area. He's known from being in those areas and his ministries in those areas. Um, whereas the uh, people who are gathered together are from all around. Because remember, there's a diaspora, just like slavery. The horrible legacy of slavery has created an African diaspora of black people who move way beyond Africa. It's all sorts of places in the world, there's a diaspora of um, people of the descent of the same heritage Jew Jesus was in, Jewish people. There's a Jewish diaspora that was spread out because also of captivity and enslavement and conquering of kingdoms, and they were spread out also. So when it says that there's a gathering here, people are coming from all over. They still have the heritage, even though they may have new roots, they lay down in other places where they've been relocated to because as we've read as we've been reading on our other daily readings the people began to get conquered and taken captive uh from their own land uh from the uh, promised land as it's called because they weren't being faithful at least according to how it reads they weren't being faithful to uh any one entity at all they are the bible isn't a monotheistic uh, book at all lots of different people worship lots of different people and things throughout the Bible. And um, in that case, that's nothing new. And Pentecost is another example of it, where um, it's two holidays being conflated into one. 
And there's an allusion to the same thing being said at a holiday called Easter, but that's another discussion. So we'll just keep reading um, right now. Verse 7. Oh, so that was verse 7, verse 8. And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? So the onlookers, the bystanders, are curious as to how the Galileans, the disciples, the first Christians that are, here, are there, there, how are they able to speak and say things in a language that they, as foreigners, foreigners visiting Jerusalem for the holiday, are able to understand? They don't have Siri or Alexa or Google to translate it for them so that they can understand what's being said. They don't even have translators. And yet foreigners are speaking and what they're being, what they're saying is being completely understood by the people hearing it. That's the miracle. Um, verse nine, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, I'm just going to keep reading because it's talking about the different nations that are gathered, their people from those nations. Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So people from all these different places are gathered together for the holiday, and even though they speak all these different languages, somehow the first disciples those 120 are able to speak and what they're saying is being understood by all these different foreign languages that's the pentecostal tongue that's what speaking in tongues actually is um at least according to what's written here not just babbling something and having somebody tell everybody else what's being said if you're actually speaking in tongues even it should be completely understood by whoever's hearing it, no matter what you're saying. That would be the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit working in what you're saying um, to verify, to prove that you're actually speaking in tongues. There will be no need for translators or any tools to translate or even to learn another language. Whatever you are saying will be understood by the person hearing it because it be the Holy Spirit inducing you saying it and also apparently opening the ears of the one hearing it. Um, verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? So um, everyone in the crowd is wondering what's going on, how is this possible? How is it that these foreigners, these Galileans are able to speak and say things that we're all able to understand um, and they're all praising God with the same message, it seems. There's a message of praise, that is. Uh, verse 13, others mocking said, they're full of new wine. So some of the people um, don't believe it, and they're obsessing, and they're saying they're just drunk. That's how they're able to uh, talk like this and abuse you with what they're saying, because they're drunk, which doesn't actually make sense. Um, but, you know, people are going to guess what they can about what stuff means. Verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. So Peter, Simon Peter, one of the disciples, is standing up and addressing the crowd. Verse 15, 
For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So Peter's letting them know, don't get it twisted. Everybody here has not been drinking. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, even though there are some people who start their day off with a nip, in their day with a nip, it'd be hard to find 120 people drunk on Sunday morning for church. And that would be basically what they're assuming happening is happening if you were to believe that they're just drunk. Um, for verse 15, for these are not drunk, as you suppose. Oh, so we read that one, verse 16. This is what was spoken by Joel, the prophet Joel. Um, so here is a verse in the beginning of the verses where I'll just read them and just keep reading them, uh, the quotations. That's what it is. It's Peter quoting uh, the book of Joel, the prophet, as he's called Joel in what we call the Old Testament. Because remember, the Bible is one singular book, yet it is also a collection of books. Same way back in the day there was this Encyclopedia Britannica. It was the singular Encyclopedia Britannica, but there were 26 volumes of it. So in the same way, the Bible is one book, but it consists of 60 plus books, depending on which version of it you're reading. I'm using a new King James Version of it here uh, for this reading. Um, but I'm, I'm going to uh, suggest you, if you aren't using, suggest you use a King James Version for reference. Or anything that I say along the way. Um, so this part now, for the next few verses, I'm just going to read through them, are what Peter is saying as he addresses the crowd as to what he believes they're witnessing as far as the tongues of fire on everyone's head and them being able to speak in languages they weren't taught or born um, with their native, born as their native tongue, born with as their native tongue. So uh, this next set of verses, verse 17, beginning with 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that uh, passage is the verses that, the, the passage there is from the book of Joel um, in the Old Testament. Chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. So if you want to go back, and we're going to go back one by one, take them one by one to understand them. But if you want to go back in the Old Testament, pull it up, you can look and see. Uh, and like I said, I'm using the blueletterbible.org, blueletterbible.org website. Um, it's free. Um, so feel free to contribute to it. Feel free to contribute to me. Um, it's an excellent reference to jump around to different versions of the Bible. Um, and there is an instance I know that's coming up that, that's going to come in handy. So um, first, if you want to go back, again, look in the book of Joel and find it. But starting with the first verse, 17, um, with it being in the last days. So this lets us know, again, this isn't red letters, but it lets us know how we have to separate what's in the Bible the Christian part of the Bible from everything else. 
Um, and don't forget to do it rightly dividing the word of God. If it's really the word of God, you don't need to divide it. So don't fall into that trap because that's not what the commandment actually is. What Jesus actually tells us the commandment is, is to know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God. So in this instance with 17, Peter is saying that he believes this, the events they're witnessing are the fulfillment of the passage from Joel, starting with it being the last days, says God. So he believes God is saying it. So we understand that whether we believe this is God Almighty or not, um, they believed at the time Joel was speaking um, that it was God. And Peter believed it was God because he's quoting it. Um, he's saying here that it'd be in those last days that the Spirit of God would be poured out on everybody. Um, and sons and daughters, so male and female, would be able to prophesy. So that presents a lot of problems to thumpers, at least in my mind, if you're going to be consistent. It's one, it's not red letters, Jesus can say it. So it's one disciples, that's fine, it's still not Jesus. But what he's saying is obviously not true. He's saying in the last days, well, this was almost 2,000 years ago. Clearly, that was not the last days. It might have been his last days, clearly, most likely. Well, yeah, we know it was because he was killed. He was martyred, as they say. So it was his last days, but it wasn't our last days. It was two, This is 2,000 years later. So clearly, that's not that doesn't stand up to being true. But it is what Peter believed that moment to be the fulfillment of. So we could still keep moving because maybe he's right. Maybe it was his last days. And that in that moment, that was what was being fulfilled. And that's what God meant. Okay. But the next part uh, about period spirit being poured out on sons and daughters. That means that the Holy Spirit uh, would be on everyone and they'd be prophesying. Well, there's another person whether you prefer his name is Saul or Paul, who arises after the Christian part of the Bible and tells women that they should be silent. They shouldn't chatter. However you want to translate it, he's letting you know women have no place in the pulpit. So you can accept that because it's in the Bible, and so that makes it scripture. You can accept that as true if you want to. I would not. I don't suggest you do. One, it's not red letters. Two, it's contrary, contrary to what we just read here. That either Peter himself, one of the disciples, who Saul slash Paul was not. Don't forget that. Peter was. He's even saying in that moment with them being able to speak in tongues, as we say in plain English, that is the Holy Spirit moving on both men and women, males and females, making them be able to uh, prophesy. So even though that other religion says that about women being silent, clearly Peter disagrees. The scriptures disagree. Joel disagrees. Um, but let's keep reading. Um, the part about seeing visions, dreaming dreams. So I imagine some of them did. I don't know. We probably will get into more of those as we keep reading. Um, um, as far as we'll move on with verse 18. Again, with men, servants, and maidservants, letting us know it's not going to be just men. It's not going to be just males. It's not going to be just females. It's, it's not going to be patriarchy, even though the Bible is full of that. Remember, Jesus' red letters are not. His red letters are the exception to the patriarchy in the Bible. And this part of this quote uh, from Joel that Peter is quoting is also an example that the patriarchy will be over, that people will be equal, uh, just as I believe we are in God's eyes anyway. 
Especially since, again, biologically, aside from religion, biology will tell you, tells us all, we all start out by default as females when we're in vitro, in the womb. Um, and then only at some point, um, chemically happens, some chemical change happens and some become males and others remain females. And by some other fluke, like we've been married and called flukes, like the fluke worm, it is even possible of doing it. Some people get in between the genders, um, in between the sexes, I should say. And um, so their gender expression, it doesn't necessarily match their uh, sexual um, chromosomes, how simple to say it, trans, basically. Um, but it's making it clear that that's not an issue with God or clearly to the prophet Joel who said it or to Peter who's quoting it. Verse 19, about showing wonders in heaven, um, that'd be the eclipse that we'd say in modern English, which happened during uh, at the climax of the crucifixion. The moon was darkened, I'm sorry, the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two when Jesus died on the cross, as we read in the Gospels. Um, and then now, and then culminating with the fire and vapor of smoke with the fire on top of their heads is what Peter is saying he believes the events to mean, to be the fulfillment of those prophecies of what we call the Old Testament, but were scripture, just like they're scripture to us now, they were taught as scripture to them back then when they would attend. Otherwise, generally speaking, most people were illiterate and couldn't read at all. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned in the darkness and the moon in the blood. Um, uh, I thought, oh yeah, so that's mentioned in 19, but it's mentioned again in um, 21. The sun, moon, sun turned, the moon turned, sorry, sun turned to darkness. That makes meaning an eclipse. The moon into blood. Now I heard a preacher say, um, and it makes sense where, and it doesn't make sense. Saying it being turned into blood, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, a blood moon makes sense where it appears to be red. That does make sense. Um, harvest moon, where it appears to be really, really, really close and really, really, really large. Those make sense. But it being uh, um, turned in the blood, literally. Uh, oops, I hit the wrong button there. Um, I don't know. Well, some preachers believe that that's fulfilled when the moon landed, that humans who have blood landed on the moon. I don't think that is necessarily the fulfillment of that verse, but I do believe that uh, space travel is fulfilled and prophesied of and what Jesus says in the Gospels that we've read. That before, when he tells us, when he comes again, everyone's going to know it, and he's going to send his angels to gather his elect from the farthest part of earth to the farthest part of heaven letting us know space travel is going to be a thing um at least that's how i believe that is to that prophecy what that prophecy means um and then verse 21 and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved um so wait let's go back one more um about 20 about before the coming of the great and awesome day of the lord so Preachers will try and twist this to say that this applies to modern times of people speaking in tongues and all of that. 
But Peter himself says, you know, he believes that it was applying to and fulfilled in that moment way back then, just about 2,000 years ago. Um, and then the part about before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord, I have to believe that um, it would, I think it, that it's referring to the crucifixion and the suffering and death on the cross. Um, I mean, but maybe it's, it's talking about something he, maybe he believes applies to something else. But that's what I think it applies to if you're going to apply that prophecy to Jesus' uh, ministry. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So one last thing about that. The Lord here is all capitals, all L, capital L-O-R-D. But if you look it up and use that the tools here on the site, you'll see it, it translates from the word Kyrios. Whereas in the Old Testament where it pops up, it's like if you look up these passages from Psalms or Joel, it probably translates to the Y-H-W-H-Y-H-V-H name. However, that's properly pronounced um, and not the same name since it's translated to Greek in the New Testament, if I understand correctly, and then translated to English, whereas the Old Testament is translated from Hebrew and from um, um, oh, another ancient language. I don't know why it's slipping my mind just now um, to, uh, to English. So uh, Lord, again, even though it's the English word Lord, it's not necessarily the word, same word in the language it was originally spoken in and it's being translated to, but it is the Lord as the people who were using it saw, uh, thought of God to be. Um, so the last part I had first though was about basically the open invitation to salvation for whomsoever will. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So Peter is calling to mind the fact that the people there witnessed Jesus and his ministry, heard his words, and saw his miracles. Um, verse 23, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. So Peter is basically calling them out for what they did in recognizing Jesus' divinity in his actions and in his words and killing him anyway, giving him the death penalty, state-sanctioned murder, and killing the, killing the king, killing the savior. Verse 24, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So Peter is letting them know, uh, reminding them, letting, pointing out that even though they did those things to Jesus, that didn't stop them. As they themselves know, they witnessed Jesus resurrected and appearing to the people for the past 40 days. This is now the 50th day. That's what makes it the Pentecost. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, uh, so now before we read this passage, it's, it's, it's a few more verses. It's um, Peter uh, using a passage from the book of Psalms. Uh, let me see which one it is. Psalm 101, I think. Let's see, this whole Yeah, it's Psalm 
Psalm 110, sorry, not 101. Um, but what we're about to read is basically Peter's first sermon to the first Christians as uh, as he's addressing them. And um, let's see. Where is it? I'm so close to trying to find it. Sorry. Uh, there we go. All right, so verse 25, I'm just going to read through the verses and then go through them and see what it is that I believe Peter is trying to say, um, what Peter is trying to say. So beginning with verse 25, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You've made me known, you've made, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Okay, so that's the end of the quote of what Peter is saying there. Um, and it's a quote from Psalm 16, excuse me, um, verses 8 through 11. So let's take them one by one. It's... Um, Jesus, I'm sorry, it's Peter's address again to uh, the first Christian disciples. And he's telling them, he's referring to David, the Old Testament of David and Goliath, David that we've read about already, and how he apparently had a vision, a prophetic vision of Christ and of God. That's where the, uh, what the reference to the Lord, uh, before speaking to or addressing the Lord, it's Basically, God the Father addressing God the Son. It's God Almighty, um, no gender specific, addressing God the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, and that David uh, is seeing that in his vision is what Peter is saying he believes um, this is a reference to. And then verse 26, um, about the heart rejoicing and flesh being glad, meaning that Regardless of what happens to your body, David, he believes, when David said it in the book of Psalms, because that's where it's a quote from, Peter is saying that he believes it's fulfillment of that, that there's hope for the people in the flesh, that there's a hereafter, that there's hope once you die, that that's not the end. Um, and in verse 27, it's the one where I think that I found tricky. I'm using the... Um, New King James Version of the Bible, but if you, because it's easier to read for me, it flows easier, but if you use a King James Version, you'll see there where, um, well, if you were listening, reading along with me, you know, I didn't read it all out loud, though I still read it, if you read with me before, you probably know why, Matthew twelve thirty seven about, uh, for by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned, there's power, there's energy in the things we say, they have the power to manifest. Whether you put faith in them or not, whether you believe they do or not, they still have that power. Um, and um, in voicing them, you give them that power, I believe, is what is meant by that. So anyway, verse 27, you notice there how the word Hades is what's used if you're using, using a New King James Version Bible. But the problem with that is if you're using a King James Version, you'll see the word for that is actually hell. And that is a problem because Hades is a Greek 
I'm sorry, Greco-Roman god, um, not um, a place. Whereas if you translate it in the King James Version, it's a place, it's hell, um, as you would think of it as a place um, where the dead are. And so I think you have to be careful about that when it comes to religion because it's e it easily gets muddled. And then you see what we keep reading um, where clearly it seems if that's hell, David, when he said it, believed that's where he was going right after he died. And a lot of people believe that hell is in the place of burning and flames. Um, but in the Old Testament, it's the place of the dead where the soul goes um, after you die. Um, that's what they believed it to be. Now, is I guess, is that consistent with the New Testament, with what Jesus says? Jesus gives us the example in Luke 16. Um, with the rich man and Lazarus when they passed away. Uh, Lazarus went to a place that sounds a lot like paradise, reads a lot like heaven, even though it's not called paradise or heaven verbatim. Uh, whereas the person who went to hell, the rich man, unnamed, by the way, so it could be you, could be anybody, who ended up in hell, um, literally ended, ended up in hell. It's translated as hell. It's described uh, as being in flames, um, not as a resting place as the people or some sort of purgatory or here at a, a place of the dead where people are just sort of hanging out when um, after they die. Hell in the New Testament of Jesus himself described it is a place of torment and flames, not just some place where people stop over on their way to judgment as it seems to be described here. Um, since, again, David says he's going there, but not going to be left there. And that Jesus, in the vision he's having, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, also dies, but doesn't end up staying there, that his soul was not left there. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak. speak. Oh, so before we move on, um, did that go through all of them? Probably. You know, leave his soul there. Also, verse 28, you've made known to me the way of ways of life. You'll make me full of joy in your presence. So um, it seems that um, with the end of that quote, the um, belief by David was that that wasn't the end after you die, that there was hope that you'll be in the presence of God. So it seems to me that's very different than what most religions will say when it comes to heaven and hell and life and death and the hereafter, at least from my understanding of the way written religion teaches it, but it's reading different to me. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament understanding of hell clearly is not the same as the way Jesus expressed hell in the New Testament, and who know better what it is, people who are guessing what happens to you after you die, or the Creator's Son himself, Jesus. Again, as Christians, I say we lean into what Jesus says. Verse 29, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he's both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So Peter is saying, let me break it down for you. You know that David came, he lived, he died, and his tomb, his monument is right there with us now. So this was just about 2,000 years ago. I don't know if that tomb is still there now. With all the wars and things that have happened since then, uh, but it's the same uh, area 
um, that's being referred to that exists in modern times, uh, that he's telling them, that Peter is telling the crowd to beware, be aware of, to remember, to take to mind. Verse 30, therefore, all to mind, therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. So Peter is saying that he believes that since David was a prophet, one of the prophecies that he received was that one of the one of his descendants would be king, but not just um sitting on the throne of his uh, like him, the throne of David, but an everlasting king, a king whose kingdom uh, extends forever. Um, the Christ, the anointed one, the Savior, Jesus. Um, verse 31, he, sorry, there's a footnote there. Some Bibles, it says, will according, uh, will read, will omit the part about according to the flesh. He will raise up the Christ. And um, some others completely omit the verse or completes the verse with he would seat one on his throne so that's uh, so there may be a difference in your bibles is what that little footnote is saying um but that's what it's referring to verse 31 he foreseen this spoke concerning the resurrection of the christ that his soul was not left in hades nor did his flesh see corruption so again uh in the new king james version it says hades sort of a waiting place, a holding on for the dead, for the soul after it dies. I don't know, presumably for a judgment. As some religions would have you believe, it's you're waiting around for a great white throne judgment, something Jesus never said in the Gospels, something that only pops up later uh, in the in Revelation is, of, is um, um, associated with Jesus. Whereas Jesus uh, doesn't talk about that at all. Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So, uh, believe what you want. Um, but here, though, uh, they, uh, Peter is saying, that's what he believes these events to mean. That um, Jesus also um, died the same way uh, David did, but wasn't left uh, to death wasn't left in Hades, that waiting room for the soul. Um, he didn't just wait around in hell. Um, he's, uh, his body didn't see corruption. His flesh didn't turn to worms. Verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So Peter is saying, you all saw him. You saw him here for the 40 days appearing to us. Off and on, and the way it reads, or the, at least the way it reads in other scriptures that didn't make it into the Bible, that were excluded from the Bible, the different accounts of Jesus' appearance to the people after his resurrection. That, to me, would have made more sense to include in the Bible, but I, we went through all that before. Um, I guess to test people, maybe that's why uh, that other religion gets introduced. And also the fulfilled prophecy is just what Jesus said. Jesus said um, not to believe people when they say, look, he's here in the desert. And yet that's just what Saul came along and said. And people believe it. Um, but he, here, Peter is saying, 
Jesus is alive. We know he resurrected as they witnessed it preserved. So they have that certainty of faith. Verse 33, therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So Peter is saying he believes that's the explanation for the tongue with fire on their heads and them speaking in tongues they weren't taught. Um, it's because Jesus fulfills his mission, has ascended to the right hand of God, taken his place in the divine throne, and now earth is his footstool. The people who killed him, persecuted, rejected him, denied him, even now doubt him, are at his footstool. He's way above us. He's way beyond all of this. Who could blame him from him for putting off a second coming? He was rejected the first time thoroughly, or fairly thoroughly, excuse me. It's a double, excuse me. So verse 33, therefore being exalted. Okay, so Peter is saying, Jesus has done his part. He's taken his place. <clears throat> excuse me, now it's on humanity to either accept or reject it. Um, but the signs are there. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. I'm just going to keep reading. So I make your enemies your footstool. So there, Peter is saying a couple of things that we shouldn't read over. First, he's um, quoting a reference to the book of Psalms um, 110, verse 1. That was the one I misquoted uh, earlier or um, miscited earlier, I should say. Um, verse 110, verse 1 is what Peter is quoting, and he's, what he's saying is the is being fulfilled right there uh, by their actions. He believes that um, in the vision that David saw, he saw God Almighty speaking to Jesus. That's the difference between Lord in English, all capital letters, L-O-R-D, that would be a reference to God Almighty, as David is referring in his vision to Jesus, also Lord in English, but only with a capital L. So we know it's still the divine God, um, but with a lowercase O-R-D in L-O-R-D. So let us know that it's not God Almighty. It's uh, God the Savior. It's the anointed one. It's Christ. It's Jesus. Um, and that's what Peter believes that that prophecy that David gave in Psalm 110 verse 1 was a reference to that Jesus fulfilled that in his mission and completing it and taking his place on the throne. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 36, therefore let the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. So Peter is letting the people know, make no mistake about it, Though they tried to stop him, Jesus has still done his part, completed his mission, and has now um, taken his place at the right hand of God as God Almighty, as the Lord, uh, who went through the mission in the flesh of humanity and brought the message of salvation to humanity. Uh, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So the bystanders, the onlookers who heard the noise and came to see what was going on, 
heard the disciples, the first Christians speaking in tongues. Now they heard Peter's uh, first sermon, his first address to the crowd, and they're convicted by their conscience, by the fact that apparently some of them did take part in the rejection of Jesus, probably took part in the crucifixion of Jesus, most likely took part in seeing the resurrection of Jesus. So now they were like, well, where do we go from here? Verse 38, and Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter's telling them to do the same thing Jesus said to do, the same thing John the Baptist said to do, to repent. That means have some introspection. Do what Michael Jackson said to do, start with the man in the mirror, no gender attached to that. Look in the mirror instead of always passing judgment on what someone else is doing. Start with yourself. You'll find you might stay busy if you do that. Start with what you're doing wrong, with what you're doing wrong with yourself, what you're doing wrong to your neighbor, and what you're doing wrong with God. And then once you realize you've done wrong in those departments or places, repent. Realize it. Don't sweep it under a rug. Repent. Say you're sorry. Apologize. That's part of repentance. Seek forgiveness. That's part of forgiveness. And then move on. Um, and that's whether it's forgiveness from God, forgiveness from your neighbor, forgiveness from yourself. Uh, seek that forgiveness and then move on. Um, but then you have to also have to be willing to extend that forgiveness to other people also to be forgiven that way. And then um, verse 39, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as to as many as as many as the Lord our God will call. So Peter's letting the people know, letting us know, the invitation is open to whomsoever will. The offer of salvation is to whoever will accept it. Not everyone will accept it, but the offer is there. Verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So um, the narrator here is letting us know that Peter's sermon was encouraging people to uh, repent. And when it says perverse, it could mean sexually perverse, but most likely it means, and more importantly, I think it means religiously perverse, um, not discerning between what's actual uh, gospel, what's God, what thus says the Lord, as they used to say, um, from what people say, not knowing what's red letter from what's just scripture or what's not even scripture, not separating, not knowing concerning the doctrine, as Jesus said, whether it's from God or whether it's speak on my own authority. That's what the will of God is, according to Jesus. Um, and so I think in not doing that, that's how you actually pervert it. And that's what is perverse. Verse 41, and then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So that's fairly amazing. In that one day, those the Events, I guess, were convincing enough that um, the people, 3,000 people, uh, found salvation in that one day. That's pretty amazing. But they had 120 people witnessing to them. They had Peter's sermon to them. And then they had the visual um, spectacle of the fire appearing to them. And then the audible spectacle of foreigners being able to speak the language they were born into. 
So with all those things, I guess it would be pretty convincing. A convincing enough that 3,000 people uh, found faith. Verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. So to me, that sounds like a subtle allusion to the beginning of the end. A subtle allusion to the start of some trouble. Because look what it says there in verse 42. That they continue steadfastly. That means faithfully. In what? Not in Jesus' words. Not in the red letters. In the apostles' doctrine. And like I said again and again, the red letters, the things Jesus had to say, the Christian message dries up with Acts chapter 1. And it doesn't begin again, allegedly again, in earnest until you get to Revelation chapter, or the book of Revelation, where there are more red letters. Why in between there are, are there not all sorts of red letter quotes of what it is Jesus had to say about all these different events that arose? Surely they must have applied, only that's not what the rest of the Bible, excluding Revelation, is about. It's about another religion, and it's about knowing concerning doctrine, whether it is from God, knowing whether because something said is Christianity, is Christianity, or if it's something else. That's the key. That's a must. Um, so it seems here they're continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. I think that's a terrible thing, a slippery slope. Um, but they are faithfully praying together. Verse 43, then fear upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So they were also able to work different apparently miracles of the apostles, that is. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common. That sounds suspiciously like communism. Let's keep reading. Verse 45, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. That is communism. It's not the political, as I understand it, political system of socialism where the government controls different resources. That's communism where people, the wealthy and the poor, take whatever it is they have and pool it so that no one has, has need of anything. That's what communism is, in my mind. That's what they're doing here, Christian communism. And yet you see preachers bark and get their feathers in a ruffle about communism, about socialism, and they defend capitalism as if that's not what we have now, and that's not what's led to people sleeping in the streets, sleeping in the parks, sleeping in the airport, sleeping in their cars, getting tickets while they sleep in their cars, tickets they can't possibly pay so that they even lose their car, the one place where they can sleep in a nation that calls itself Christian. That's what's happening now. But those same preachers say nothing about that. And yet they bemoan communism, which apparently here is how the disciples started out. So again, believe what you want, but you have to see the hypocrisy in it if you don't see anything else. Um, but the first disciples, that's what they did. They let go of their worldly possessions and sold them so that none of them had need of anything. Um, verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. So it wasn't about their financial gain. It wasn't about being a mega church 
and how many mansions and jets you can get the preacher. It's about everyone having their basic needs being met so that their focus can be on the higher things, on the spiritual things, on Christianity as it's meant to be. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. So here we see something very fabulously and mysteriously being introduced to us. The word church. Uh, maybe Jesus mentioned it during the gospel. I don't think he did. And I don't think anywhere else does the word church get introduced until now. And in some versions of the Bible, it doesn't even get introduced here. It's a Christian thing. Synagogues and temples were what the people in general were worshiping in including the, in the time and family of Jesus when he did his ministry. Um, but now that Christianity is arising, churches are also the new thing, the part of the new covenant, the new way of identifying the place of worship. Um, but that was the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we'll end this chapter. But that's not where we'll end this reading. I don't want to forsake the gospel, God forbid, ever. Um, so what we'll do is we'll just, instead of going over the Gospels again, which we've done them again and again and again, if you've read one of these before, as you know, we've done it at least, I'd say half a dozen times over the years, just the Gospels. And this is our first time going through anything beyond them as far as the book of Acts uh, goes. What we'll do to not forsake the Gospels is we'll do uh, a Sunday lesson, Sunday school lesson, so to speak, of a sort of summary of uh, chapter by chapter of the gospel as we go um, here through the book of Acts. So we'll begin with the book of Matthew and we'll just do its chapter one. And I know there's no red letters there. Instead, it's basically a listing of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Um, so uh, when we read it, it'll be, um, I'll point out to you us the different names that stand out to me and the things, events associated with them. I recall them from the Old Testament, anything else that stands out to me about them, rather than go uh, verse by verse over those readings, since those readings are already here on this platform, Anchor, that I'm reading it, or whichever platform, Spotify or other platform you're listening to it on, you can read those chapter by chapter, just look them, look them up by their chapter and verse here on the Naked Truth, if you want to read them completely in context, whereas for now, I'll just do it. Cliff's uh, notes, as it were, version of that chapter of the gospel. So let's begin with chapter one of Matthew and just do a quick look at it. So bear with me, please, as we try to figure out how we're going to do this, because I'm just going to skim through it, I guess, and start with the list of the patriarchs. Um, this, uh, so beginning with verse one of Matthew, uh, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So David is referring to there as the same David and Goliath, David, Abraham is the patriarch, David. And we read, as we read, seemed kind of cowardly, some of the stuff he did, um, putting his wife at risk, if he's, just, if I remember right, same one who put his wife at risk um, and had her pass herself off as his sister rather than his wife for his own safety. And that wasn't called out at all. Um, so then verse two, uh, we read about Isaac and Jacob, uh, again, seemingly more cowardly behavior. We read about among um, at least one of them, 
um, with how he approached his brother. Uh, so terrified to meet his brother that he sent his own kids ahead of himself and his wives. Because remember, this is a polygamy, poly polygamistic society where a man could have as many women, side pieces, wives, concubines as he could afford as long as they didn't belong to someone else. He had plenty of them. Um, and yet he sent them ahead of himself before he faced him brother, his own brother out of fear. Um, so that's when he stands out there. Next one, the family. This is the family tree of Jesus. Um, so the next one gets really scandalous by modern standards. There's Judah and Tamar. Um, that's incest, him having sex with his own daughter-in-law, and it was apparently, and we read about it already. It's in such a scandalous situation. It reads like a glory hole. If you have innocent ears and don't know what a glory hole is, it's a place where people go to have sex anonymously with each other. There's a booth. And this happens even in the Bible. They had their ritual booths. We read about them. People have their booths. Think about like if you're in the mall and you want to go into one of those little photo booths and take a picture in the booth with your friend or just by yourself. You go in there, you slide a little curtain and take a picture in the booth. So there's a booth. But right next to your booth, there's another booth. And then right the next to that booth, there's another booth. And between the booths, the walls on the booths, this is how the booths work. There's a little hole. There's a little opening. And at that little opening, you can do lots of different things. I don't recommend you do any of those things, but people can do lots of different things with those holes. They can interact with each other with the walls thing between them, but with just that little hole between them, they can slip things between those holes between each other. As crazy as that sounds, that seems to be what happened with Judah and his daughter-in-law, um, Tamar. He had sex with her, didn't even know it was her, and uh, paid her for it. None of it got called out at all. Uh, she got called out for getting pregnant from it, but him doing all that didn't get called out at all. One of the more interesting, scandalously sexual stories of the Bible. And again, if you use the blueletterbible.org website, um, that's what I'm using to read along with you, read along with you, read this to you, with you, um, just search any of those names and you can find their backstory and see it for yourself, or just like I said, read it in context with me here on The Naked Truth. But again, just um, once you find what chapter and verse they're in, just find that same chapter and verse here on The Naked Truth and read along with me. We've made it this far, we've made it. Um, so feel free to use that as a reference. That's the one that stands out to me there. Um, so in verse four, um, none of those names really stand out. Um, then you get to verse 5, Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse. So the one that stands out there is Ruth. I'm sorry, not Ruth, um, Rahab. Well, actually Rahab and Ruth. So we'll start with Ruth since she's the, since she was last. So we'll do her first. Uh, I'm sorry, we'll cover her first. Um, so she's um, the more virtuous one of the two women by modern standards. She uh, slept with her mother-in-law, even though her husband uh, died, even though her sons died. She slept with her mother-in-law through her old age. Um, slept with her through tough times and ended up seeing her through to the other end, to a prosperous other side. Rahab, on the other hand, a hero. She um, uh, sided with two uh, hero, two uh, soldiers for the army. She hid them out. 
rescued them, kept them from being killed, and um, she did one other thing uh, that kind of gets downplayed. She had a threesome with them. She was a prostitute, and she had uh, a session with both of them, and, you know, didn't get called out. None of it got condemned. Scripture just kept rolling like it was nothing. Um, again, this is Jesus' family. So, uh, verse 6. Uh, this was another one that's actually scandalous, not just um, uh, scandalous by norms, but genuinely scandalous. David, the king, and what he did to make it into the lineage of Jesus. He's a killer. He's a murderer. He's someone who put a hit out on somebody. He put a, had someone die, a soldier. He had someone in uniform killed so that he could take the person's wife. Not take the person's wife, I'm sorry, take the person's wife again. The person was out serving the country. Uh, he was out serving in the military when David saw his wife and took her. The scripture doesn't explicitly call it rape um, because, again, it's a patriarchal system. The woman probably didn't have much choice in it. Um, but he took her, got her pregnant, and then, as if that wasn't enough, got her husband killed so that he could take her again. Um, the first child died, but then he ends up having a buried family from her after that, and the ball just kept rolling. That's what the part about um, the, the, I'll read it to you. Jesse begot David the king, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. That's um, that's the, the story I was just telling you about. So then, um, verse 7, Solomon begot Rehoboam, Rehoboam begot Abiah, and Abiah begot Aja. So um, that's the same Solomon, known as the wisest man in the Bible and history, Solomon. Um, let's see. Just reading through the rest of the verses there. None of the other names, um, one of the other events, I guess, that jumps out to me is verse 11. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. That stood out to me because that brings us up to just about the times we were reading on our other daily readings here on the Naked Truth, where the people haven't been faithful. They went to the promised land and colonized it with the promise that they could colonize it and stay there faithfully forever, as long as, with the contingency statement, if they were faithful. Immediately, they began being unfaithful. As we began reading, they've continually been conflicted in being there, uh, whether with themselves or with their neighboring countries or the people who they uh, took the land from colonizing it again and again and again and again. And we, um, and that just brings to mind where we, some preachers talk about the fig tree generation and uh, a certain modern uh, event being a marker of when that happened, 1940 something, when Israel became a nation. But I think you have to look even before that, when the declaration was given that um, they would become a nation that they actually had the backing of Britain to have a, a land of their own given to them. So if you count from that date, which I think is right after the turn of the century, 1912 or 14 or something like that. If you count from there, even 120 year uh, generation, 
would be fast approaching by like 1937. That would be that final, even if that's, if you count that as the big generation where they were promised a, a land of their own. And that began then, the clock began then. 1937 would have to be sort of the alarm clock if you're using that as a, as a, a marker. Let's see. Um, and then of the rest of the names. And Jacob, verse 16, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So that verse there lets us know of the why there's a difference between this genealogy and the ones, the one that appears later in the Gospels, in one of the other Gospels, Luke, I think it is, uh, this genealogy is the genealogy of Jesus, um, is my stepdad, his um, adoptive father, Mary's husband, Joseph, not the divine father, God Almighty, as Christians believe Jesus um, to be uh, from. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David, uh, so it just counts the different generations with that verse. Um, I guess we will read, since we made it through those genealogies pretty quickly, we will go ahead and read um, about the birth of Christ, uh, beginning with verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Now, um, after his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. So, sounds real explicit, real slipped in right quick right there before they came together. Letting you know explicitly before they hooked up and had sex and busted one together, she was already pregnant. She already had a baby in her belly. Um, verse 19, and Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So, um, not wanting to have her face shame for being um, pregnant before they even got to do the marriage vows, Joseph wanted to help cover it up and quietly divorce her, is what it implies there. Verse 20, but while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you marry your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So Joseph was so troubled by the thoughts he was having that he got an intervention, a divine intervention in a dream of an angel appearing to him, strengthening him to not forsake his family, to stay the path. And that what's happening is bigger than him. And that what's in her belly was not from some scoundrel, but was a divine happening. Verse 21, and she will bring forth the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is named before he's even born, like only a few others throughout the scriptures in the Bible. Um, but he's given his name um, ahead of time. Verse 22, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, I'm just going to keep reading because uh, the writer Matthew here is quoting an Old Testament scripture um, that he believes applies to what's happening now, which um, I'm going to read now. Verse 23, 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So um, that's in, that's a quote from the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, and that Matthew believes is uh, being fulfilled there with um, Jesus, um, the nativity of Jesus, as we would say, um, and his birth and his arrival to humanity. Verse 24, then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. So, um, Joseph apparently was comforted by the dream that he had and, um, and, um, had a change of heart and comforted himself with Mary. Verse 25, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. So that making it clear before they came together, again, they said it before explicitly, emphasizing it again now. So we know it's not Joseph's baby. Before they had sex, Joseph is willingly now putting off consummating the marriage and proceeding with the marriage. Because at this point it says she's betrothed, meaning basically um, engaged. She's meant to be his property so that others will know she's not just up for grabs basically um so she's betrothed she's spoken for um and now he's gonna be saying basically comforted by the dream the vision he had in his dream he's gonna proceed with that plan go ahead and marry her and explicitly not have sex with her yet um until she gave birth to jesus which he willingly waited is what the um, narrator described Matthew's letting us know um, and now Jesus is born and now that is the end of Matthew chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2 and thereby the end of this reading of the naked truth thank you for joining me as always I hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again love you and if you haven't joined like join join on this platform whichever one you're listening to me on Feel free to, however you let me know it, let me know it by liking or adding or friend or friending me or whatever you do on whichever one you're on. Feel free to do that. Love you. See you next time. Thanks again. Peace be with you. Oh, one last thing before we move on on the subject of love since you mentioned it. I mentioned I was traveling recently and I was just got back and had a great, <laughs> had a great flight there. The flight home was a little interesting it got turbulent like not as the worst i'd ever experienced but there was a little kid on the flight and the plane got rocky and shaky and the little kid got scared and all of a sudden he goes oh my god lord please save us <laughs> obviously the lord was the same and saved us but i thought it was cute but besides that i had a good visit and something else interesting happened on the subject of love that I didn't really expect or see happening or coming and ain't even looking for and not even sure that's where it's going or thinking about. I was visiting a friend in a state where uh, weed is legal. And so we were uh, walking around the um, the place. It's not legal to smoke in the hotel, though. So in the hotel room, so we uh, walked around where it was legal to smoke. And um, while we're walking around, we're just walking and talking and out of nowhere, he um, reaches over and just takes me by the hand. 
And it was one of those feelings that, because um, we hadn't really taken our friendship public, really, not really. I mean, we've been in public places before, actually, but that's the first time that had ever happened. So it was just kind of jarring because it was something I wasn't expecting. Don't know how I feel about it. I wasn't really ready for but since you mentioned the subject of love, I fin- figured it'd be worth mentioning. So anyway, stay safe. Love you. See you next time. Peace be with you.